Hello, it's Thursday 23rd of November. I'm Hannah Pearson. On today's show, Gary Bowerman and I will be rounding up eight statistical travel and tourism talking points from across the region. So let's get started. This is the Southeast Asia Travel Show. Hello, wherever you are in the world, and thanks for listening in. So today, we've got a slightly different travel talking points show for you. This week, we're going to go behind the scenes of statistical storytelling, given that it's that time of year when facts and stats are everywhere, and they gather extra importance as we near the year end. Over the next 30 minutes, we'll travel statistically from Thailand to Japan, Malaysia to Indonesia, and Singapore to the Philippines. So Hannah, where should we start? Yes, let's start with our good old friends, OAG. As you know, many of our listeners know, we love to refer to those numbers. They're so comprehensive. Um, so if we have a look at 2023 November Southeast Asia airline capacity stats, um, overall, we're at about 35 million seats. So that's 21% below November 2019 levels, but 11% higher than November 2022. So it's... it's getting better, right? It's improving, but slowly, slowly. Yeah. And, and you dig a little bit deeper, it, 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 as you said there, that the um, overall, the figures are 21% below November 2019. That's still quite a high number, 21% low, uh, below where we were pre-pandemic, um, but 11% higher than this time last year, November 2022. Drill down a little bit further and you find out that domestic capacity uh, accounts for 58%, 58% of all seats in the region, and international capacity for 42%. Now, both of those figures are down 21% compared to November 9, 2019. So that's on an even keel. Both international and domestic are still behind the pre-pandemic level. Um, Hannah, you're also looking at some of the regional capacities. Um, it's no surprise, I guess, we, we, we've said this before, that Indonesia is way out in front. Yeah, exactly. But I think what's also interesting is when you look at the recoveries of the individual countries, and there's actually quite a big difference. So you have countries like Malaysia, it's actually got one of the slowest recoveries. They're at something like minus 27% versus those 2019 levels. But Vietnam, Singapore, Philippines, they're actually only at minus 10%. So again, once you drill down to that country level, there's a lot of differences. And it's quite interesting in general when you're looking at domestic capacity, because whilst international capacity in, across Southeast Asia is generally rising, it's on the up, actually domestic um, aviation capacity seemed to have hit a peak in July 2022. And it's been kind of declining since then. In the past few months, we're still seeing that decline. So you know, international capacity, great that it's moving up, but perhaps we're now seeing that that evening out you know, domestic capacity, unfortunately, seems to be taking a little bit of a hit. Do you think that's because demand is down or because more carriers are now concentrating more on international routes? Yeah, I was just, I was just trying to weigh that up as I was saying, you know, about this domestic capacity. I don't know. I don't know what it is, whether they're redeploying maybe some of those craft to the international routes less demand because people are not traveling so much domestically. But then at the same time, we know that currencies are weak um, in the region and therefore people are still doing domestic travel. So it's, it's hard to say. What do you think? 
Yeah, that's a good point. So, I mean, looking at the the breakdown of the top airlines in the region, six of the top 10 airlines are low-cost carriers. And I think we're seeing at the moment, aren't we, a lot of announcements of new routes which are cross-border uh, cross routes within the region and also connecting Southeast Asia and Northeast Asia, quite a lot of new routes connecting uh, two regions that would have sort of become a little bit decoupled during the pandemic but are, are recoupling quite quickly right now. The six um, LCCs, in the top 10, the Lion Air, which is the, the largest airline in the region, Air Asia, Vietjet, uh, Cebu Pacific Air, Thai Air Asia, and Batik Air. There are four legacy carriers in there. Uh, Vietnam Airlines is second. Uh, Singapore Airlines is eighth. Philippine Airlines is ninth. And Malaysia Airlines is tenth. I'm not sure that tells you a great deal because I, I, that, that composition of the market we would have probably expected anyway. But as you say, this kind of imbalancing that we've seen, I, I guess it's just the stage of the recovery route. I mean, I, I wonder if in a year's time, Hannah, we'll actually have a much better balanced look at how the market will actually shake out. I guess it's just taken time. It's what, 19, 20 months since the region reopened. He said at the beginning it would take time for things to shake down. And that's still happening. And I think it will continue to happen into, into the second half of next year. Yeah, absolutely. It just comes down to, how we keep saying, it's just so difficult to forecast things um, right now. And that's what airlines are probably struggling to do because, you know, we're talking about air capacity. Of course, it's different from actual seats being flown. So the air capacity is what the airline thinks might happen um, and putting those seats out there. And they're just constantly adjusting and readjusting as they see what's going on in the markets. So you're right. I think it's going to take a, another good year to really see where are those trends going? Is it really that domestic is going to decline? I don't think so. We've got all of the huge domestic market in uh, Indonesia and Vietnam. We'll talk about that later. Um, but it's a, a temporary lull, I suppose. Yeah, agreed. So let's uh, move to Thailand. And we're talking statistically, of course, in this show today. So the headline is quite dramatic. Nine new Thai airlines are set to launch operations. Nine new airlines. That's, that's an astonishing figure, Hannah. Uh, but when you drill down to it, um, it's not quite what it seems because they're not, uh, most of them aren't scheduled airlines. Uh, there's a whole bunch in there. There's some chartered airlines. There's some air, um, helicopter airline. Um, there's, there's a whole range of things. There's a cargo airline as well. But even so, um, launching or, or giving permission to launch nine new airlines in a market, that's pretty brave, isn't it? Well, especially given what we've seen in Malaysia right now, you know, with my airline and lots of rumors around SKS Airways as well and uh, the, the feasibility of that airline. But, you know, as, as we've commented before, Thailand is a bigger domestic market, but nine is big. Um, out of those nine, you have uh, that really cool <laughs> really cool airlines. Um, they're, they're planning to do schedules. Um, you have M Land Arch, uh, which are planning to do scheduled routes, mainly to the southern routes to Betong. And of course, Betong has really struggled to get um, airlines to fly there. Asia Atlantic Airlines, that's meant to be a scheduled one, and P80 Air, which is scheduled and looks like they're going to be focusing on China. Um, so it's it's brave. We'll see. And, you know, just because the air license is granted doesn't necessarily mean that it's still going to come off. That's just one, of, one of the many hoops that they've got to jump through to actually be able to start operations. Yeah, you mentioned that. I think you said PAT Air, which is going to be focusing on China. Do we know any more details about that? Is that backed by Chinese investors? 
I've no idea, but it, I mean, given the fact that they are focusing on China, you you think there must be something somewhere, right? Yeah, so we're starting to see a few of these, aren't we? There's Transnusa in Indonesia, the one we talked about last week in Brunei, I think it was called Gallup Air. Those are both funded and invested by, by Chinese interests. I mean, it would make sense to have a, uh, an air, airline based in Thailand if you were going to do that. Um, I guess we should probably mm. find out a little bit more about that. Yeah, we'll do some homework about that one. So from China, then let's keep, I suppose, the East Asia and go over to Japan, which we know is not in Southeast Asia, um, but still got some pretty interesting stats, right, Gary? Yeah, when as we've spoken about, well, since 20, 2019, really, Japan and Thailand have been on this sort of crash course. You know, they're both trying to outdo each other for visitor arrivals each year. If we go back to 2019, it was a bit of a differential, but, you know, Thailand was leading the region with 39.9 million visitor arrivals. Japan was not far behind, 31.9 million in 2019. And both countries have had this stated ambition to achieve 40 million inbound arrivals in a single year as soon as possible. Thailand believes it can do it next year, um, Japan possibly uh, in 2025. But, you know, both are on course this year doing quite well. I think so far this year, Thailand has had about 23 million arrivals. Uh, and in the first 10 months of this year, Japan has had 19.9 million arrivals. That in itself is quite an interesting story, but the composition of the markets is also quite interesting. And that's where you know, this, this element for our show comes in. Four of those top 10 inbound markets are from Southeast Asia. Yeah, I mean, you've got Thailand, um, you've got Vietnam, Philippines, and Singapore. And what's quite interesting is when you look at their arrivals versus 2019, actually Vietnam, Philippines, and Singapore have all exceeded, if we're talking January to October, um, they have exceeded January to October 2019 numbers. Singapore is at 120% of uh, 2019 levels, Vietnam 116, Philippines just a little bit more, 103%. So Southeast Asians are really traveling in big, big numbers to Japan, which is a good thing for Japan, given that their Chinese arrivals right now are still down 77%. And of course, you know, China was one of the big, big markets into Japan before. So they're having to compensate from that. Um, South Korea also doing very well into Japan right now. Yeah, absolutely. So you look at the, the composition of the top 10 markets, four of those are regional Northeast Asian markets, you would expect that South Korea, China, Japan, and Hong Kong, four are from Southeast Asia, uh, Thailand, Vietnam, Philippines, and Singapore, and two other outliers, the US, which is traditionally a huge market into Japan. And Australia in, in ninth position, slightly below that level, Indonesia and Malaysia come in at 12th and 13th. Now, if you take the combined total of the six Southeast Asian markets to Japan in the top 13, uh, that aggregates out at around 2.74 million visitors from six Southeast Asian markets in the first 10 months of the year. And that's around 14% of total arrivals to Japan so far this year. Not too shabby for uh, Southeast Asia. <laughs> so let's swing back. Um, so we're in Japan and Thailand is obviously there in the, the top 10. Let's look back at um, Thailand then and Thailand's arrivals in general and who's leading that. And what's interesting about Thailand's top 10 is Japan is nowhere in sight. Of course, before it was one of the 
top markets, um, but it's not even hitting the top 10 anymore. Who's who's top to arrive into uh, Thailand, Gary? Although I'm sure most of our listeners can take a good guess. Yeah, we've alluded to this before, haven't we, Hannah? Number one market so far this year was the number one market in 2022 is Malaysia. 3.8 million arrivals from Malaysia into neighboring Thailand, which is an astonishing figure, really. That's very, very high. It's number one primarily because the Chinese market is down so far this year, 2.9 million arrivals so far this year. Potential to catch up um, across the rest of the year, but there's only two months left. Will it make up that 900,000 differential, particularly as a lot of Malaysians will be traveling at the end of the year as well? Interesting thing about the Malaysian outbound to Thailand this year, Hannah, you mentioned earlier that domestic travel and air capacity has been lower this year. There's a lot of issues in in destinations like Langkawi uh, regarding overpricing and the Malaysians are preferring to go to Thailand. It's quite a leakage, isn't it? 3.8 million arrivals to your neighboring country, particularly after domestic travel was so strong during the pandemic in Malaysia. It is. And what is really interesting is Thailand um, talked about how the week of Deepavali, which is, of course, we have public holiday here in Malaysia, they had said that during that week, they had received about 50,000 Malaysians had visited Thailand. Langkawi, over just the long weekend, so we're talking three days, said that they had received 10,000. Um, so I think that, that that speaks miles about the situation where domestic travel is in. Right now in Malaysia, in that fifty thousand are choosing to go over over the border to Thailand, and only a fraction of that are, are choosing to stay in Malaysia and, and go up to Langkawi. I think what's also interesting for Thailand, just in general, is the fact that yes, Malaysia is one of the biggest markets because China hasn't returned, but Malaysians are still um, above pre-pandemic levels visiting Thailand this year versus. 2019, they're at 112%. Um, so people are choosing to go there. But Russia is also performing very strongly for Thailand, 102%. Vietnam has recovered to pre-pandemic levels. Singapore is almost there. And India at 79%. So they're not so far off. And presumably they're hoping that that will be helped by the waiving of visas as well for the Indian market. Yeah. And just anecdotally, I was in Bangkok last week. And I thought I'd go along to visit the Siam Paragon Mall, which, as you remember, was where the shooting took place during the Chinese um, Golden Week holiday. A lot of media speculation around that time, you know, would it dampen the sentiment for Chinese tourists to come back? But I was more interested in the fact, would it actually dampen the sentiment for regional tourists to visit Siam Paragon? Because it is a real popular tourism destination, not just for shopping, but it's got a lot of entertainment. It's got a lot of dining and F&B, and it's just started putting up all its new Christmas installations, which look great. And surprise, surprise, tourists were back. You know, you heard a lot of voices um, of Malaysians. There were a lot of Malaysians uh, in the mall uh, last weekend. Singaporeans, Vietnamese, uh, Filipinos as well, a lot of Indian tourists, and of course, a lot of Chinese tourists. So you know, I think that media speculation that that has dampened uh, inbound tourism to Bangkok and particularly to the mall. Uh, it's anecdotal. And it was only one date, but I didn't see any difference to when I was last there about three or four months ago. Mm. Well, there we have it. So don't always believe <laughs> newspaper headlines, as I think we have learned to uh, <laughs> our peril over the pandemic. <laughs> So keeping with this domestic tourism theme, um, let's go down to Indonesia. Um, so Indonesia has seen, and of course, you know, Indonesia is 
a massive population, but their domestic movements from January to September 2023 are 626 million <laughs> movements, which is just um, eye-watering when you compare it to, to other countries. I mean, population is 274 million. So that number has actually exceeded the whole year 2019 numbers. So 2019, the whole year was about 528 million. Um, so already they've, they've hit this 626 million um, just in the first three quarters of the year. However, they did have pretty high hopes for domestic tourism this year. They, were, they had this target of 1.2 to 1.4 billion domestic trips. And the deputy tourism minister has admitted, you know, to reach that target would be very difficult. They have, of course, just launched a new domestic tourism campaign, encouraging people to do that. But I think that they admit even with that, you know, that, that 1.2 to 1.4 billion target might be um, a bit far off. Yeah, this is, uh, it's an interesting element this I, I remember posting about this uh we talked about this i don't know a few months ago when they set this target of 1.2 to 1.4 billion domestic movements this year and somebody uh i think in jakarta replied saying that if you actually look at the figures the vast majority of those uh, trips are taken within java and they're relatively short uh journeys so th that, that made me curious about how do you actually monitor and record all of these trips. I don't know how it's done. For example, you know, China is, is um, the, the world's largest domestic market and it records all domestic movements. I think back in 2019, there were around about 6 billion domestic movements. This year, it's looking around about 5 billion domestic movements. But how do you monitor those? I mean, that's not, that's not train tickets, that's not flight tickets, that's not hotel bookings, or is it? Is it mobile phone tracking? How do you actually do that? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, if you know the answer, let us know. But um, yeah, there, there must be a, a definition somewhere, I guess. But exactly is it they're tracking the number of vehicles in and out, adding to the number of train tickets sold, added to the number of planes? Yeah, I don't know. But it's the same if we're looking and uh, we'll, we'll move then across to Vietnam. So Vietnam from January to October have reported 98.7 million. Um, so you know, six six times smaller, but they they've still got those domestic tourists there. How do you do you count that? It's it's an interesting one. But in Vietnam, there again, there's this this kind of hangover of is there a slowdown in domestic tourism? Certainly, there's been a lot of articles around popular tourism destinations, uh, for Quoc being one of them, um, declining in popularity, much as we've seen for Langkawi, even if it's we've seen for Boracay. In the Philippines, this kind of decline in popularity of some of these really previously very, very popular tourist destinations for domestic tourists too. Yeah, Vietnam's quite an interesting media landscape, I think. Probably the most of, of all the countries in the region, perhaps Thailand. But, but Vietnam, you've got this real, I guess, dichotomy of hugely upbeat, you know, um, national media sentiment trying to promote tourism. But then there's a lot of real negative sentiment, as you said, about the issues in Pukwok, but also uh, around the country as well, particularly when it comes to overdevelopment and the impacts of overdevelopment, the decline in um, demand for some domestic destinations as well, overpricing, and all of these issues are sort of taken account. And they're all sort of all this dirty laundry is being washed in public, um, but their inbound arrivals are doing quite well. It, it just seems that there's, there's a 
the whole scenario, the whole landscape there, I guess is kind of emblematic of just the changes that are going on post-COVID around the region. And Vietnam, I guess, is, you know, it's playing out perhaps a little bit more publicly because it is such a big, such a fast-growing market. You know, those those issues are coming to the fore a little bit more. What do you think about that? Yeah, absolutely. I think I think you're right, As particularly that that tension between uh, killing the the around killing the golden goose, right? That that overseeing seeing those tourism destinations and developers building on them, thereby <laughs> destroying the thing that made them so special in the first place. It was all that controversy, wasn't there recently about? somebody building something on Halong Bay and then and getting that very small fine um, because they did that. Um, so it's just, it's that balance. And like you say, this is really, I think, uh, issues that developing countries are, are struggling with. How do you manage tourism? How do you, how do you grow it in a way? And it's just those, those teething pains that Europe has gone through, you know, three decades ago and there wasn't so much media coverage of it. And of course, you know, there's very intense media scrutiny nowadays and Southeast Asia is trying to grapple with all of that and in the limelight at the same time. Yeah, that's a really good point about the, the emerging market, the developing economies, because tourism is, you know, it occupies such an important place in, in the roster of, of economic segments in most of these countries. And I, I mentioned, you know, the, the post-pandemic shakedown, you know, maybe all of this was coming anyway. It's just kind of highlighted it in, in the importance and in, certainly in the media coverage, just the, the timeline of emerging market growth. Yeah, I think you're right. So shall we move from one emerging market to another, which is the Philippines? Um, and so for Philippines, our stats is 103%. And that's the news that Cebu Pacific is actually expecting to surpass its 2019 levels by the year end. So they are expecting that to be its its network will be at this 103% of pre-pandemic levels. They see domestic exceeding pre-pandemic international at 93%. So still a little bit behind, but but catching up, but overall, you know, surpassing where they were. And like many of the other airlines in the last couple of weeks, they also had a net profit in the first three quarters of the year of 5.03 billion Philippine pesos um, versus a loss of almost 12 billion uh, Philippine pesos the same period in 2022. Um, and we're seeing this, aren't we, across the region, all of these different airlines reporting record profits in the case of Singapore Airlines to just finally seeing net profit. Um, so I think this one is great news, obviously, for the Filipino market. Um, that it is on the up, as we said at the top of the show, um, Philippines overall is at 90% of pre-pandemic levels anyhow when it comes to air capacity. And it looks like Cebu Pacific is playing a key role in that. Yeah, it's fascinating. Everything you said there is just really fascinating and, and symbolic of, of where we're at right now as we as we near the end of 2023. A couple of things that I picked out from what you were saying there, Hannah. One, is that, you know, we're at that stage now, aren't we, where airlines are nearing or, or making forecasts of when they will actually return to their 100% capacity level compared to 2019. Varies, doesn't it? Some are saying over the next winter, some are saying by the end of next year, um, some of the Chinese airlines perhaps not into early 2025. So we're getting closer. And then that's the reset, isn't it? What happens next? You know, once you actually get back to those 2019 levels, five years probably after 
um, you departed from those levels, what happens next? And the other one, I think, is, as you mentioned, the the sort of honeymoon period that airlines have had, uh, particularly the the legacy carriers, which have, you know, much, or they have had much higher margins. They've had higher profits than the low-cost carriers, which operate on very, very tight margins. But again, that landscape is changing as well. Competition is getting much more fierce and, and costs are rising. You know, as you start to operate more, your costs rise as well. And so I think a lot of the airlines, although they're reporting higher profits at the moment, are also saying that their costs are increasing. And so the margins going into 2024 will certainly be tighter. I don't think we're going to see those, those mega profits that we've seen uh, over some quarters this year, next year. Um, and that takes us back into almost a normalized market where, you know, everybody's competing on economic strength as opposed to recovery strength, uh, which we've seen over the last 18 months, two years. Yeah, that's a great point. So talking about recoveries, um, let's hit Singapore. And so, so for Singapore, we've got another big number there, which is 2.3 billion Singapore dollars. So this 2.3 billion Singapore dollars is the amount that Gunting Singapore are planning to spend to revamp Resorts World Sentosa. Um, so they're planning to build a new 700-room hotel. They're going to have this retail space with a floor area of over 21,000 square meters. They're going to have a, a waterfront sculpture, which is starting construction in 2024 and expected to be completed by 2031. So I have no idea how how huge this, this waterfront sculpture is to take seven years. Um, it, it must be pretty big. Um, but overall, they're, they're doing well. They're, their quarterly sales increased. They've said that they are gaining market share from Marina Bay Sands, which is, of course, its big rival in Singapore. They're the only two integrated casino resorts. Um, but overall, this this spend that they're planning is really expected to be part of that pledge that um, Gunting Singapore, Marina Bay Sands also made back in 2019 that they would expand their existing resorts with new non-gaming attractions. So Gunting Singapore pledged $4.5 billion dollars Singapore dollars to expand that. And uh, this looks like it's 2.3 billion of that. Yep, absolutely. And uh, this is a fascinating new turn in the market, really. We're seeing this across Asia where gaming tourism, uh, which, you know, just accrued such huge numbers of, of dollars over the last decade, I would say, particularly up to 2019. And it's now the next phase. What happens next? So you look at Singapore when it uh, reissued its licenses uh, to its two concessionaires, as you said there. Part of those contracts were that they would invest in non-gaming facilities, exactly the same as happened in Macau. So, you know, the two major integrated resort destinations in the region, Macau, six concessionaires, their licenses were renewed, I think, well, about a year ago now. Um, and all of them had to invest huge amounts of money over the next 10 years into non-gaming facilities. The interesting part about this is that as, as Singapore... And as Macau try to move away from the casino table, I think in casino, in Macau's case, it's looking to, to uh, decrease from about 50% of total tourism revenue coming from casino tables to about 40% over the next four or five years. That's quite a big shift, a 10% shift. And Singapore obviously wants to diversify its, its integrated resort economy as well. You've got new players coming into the market. So Japan will be next, or it looks very much like Japan will be next in launching casino resorts. Thailand looks as though it's possibly on the cusp of 
changing its constitution so it will allow um, the construction of gaming resorts, although you know that will be a bit further down the line. You've got the um, the, the Emirates. I think it's Ras Al Khaimah is launching a an MGM resort in 2027. Uh, there will be more uh, across the region. So we're seeing the shift in the two mega markets slightly away from the casino table into more diversified entertainment. Whereas you've got new new uh, new entrants coming into the market, which will be trying to take some of that gaming market share probably going to be quite an interesting market over the next five to 10 years, I would think. Yeah, for sure. It's, it's one to watch um, this, this gaming and casino-led tourism and, and see how that plays out in the region. So our final, we've got an extra point. So we've done eight uh, uh, talking points so far. We've got a ninth one uh, we'll just talk about briefly, Hannah. And this takes us back to Thailand. And this is an interesting one. You found this. I, I'd completely missed this. The figure is 4 trillion Thai baht, and the issue is soft power. Tell us more. Yes. So I've, you know, we've seen Thailand talk more and more about um, soft power. And I guess they look at Korea and they see, you know, just how Korea has used the K-pop, K-drama as as really, really a, you know, a, a powerful tool to promote the country. And I think it's decided I'd like a bit of that. Um, so they have launched a soft power strategy um, which is aiming to generate an annual revenue of around four trillion Thai baht um, within the next four years. It's really ambitious. You know, they they have eleven soft powers, and if you might remember, they used to have five Fs, <laughs> and these five Fs were all again around soft power. So that was food, fight, festivals, film, and fashion. But they've expanded this to eleven, so they've added on sports instead of just fights. So they've expanded beyond that: tourism, music, books, games, arts and design as well. Um, it's a three-phase strategy. So the first phase uh, is 100 days. They're going to look at venues. They really want to focus on cultural events. They've got this winter festival, and they, they recently announced, I think they're planning to do maybe 3,000 different festivals, I think, next year, that there are 3,000 events that they're focusing on, which is huge. Um, the second phase of this is then until April 2024. One family, one soft power, UFOS. <laughs> um, but as part of all of this, you know, they're also aiming to train up 20 million individuals focusing um, on these soft powers. Um, they're going to have cultural showcases, films and music festivals and really just try to put Thailand's cultural presence on the map in global events. Um, so it's, it's a really ambitious play. As we know, Thailand do love do love their strategies do love their different <laughs> numbers and acronyms. But as we've said before, you know, when we've talked about film tourism or music tourism, I really see that this is the way that tourism is is going in the region, is is competing on these these soft powers using this the the USP of the culture in these different countries to attract tourists and to become more influential. Yeah, totally agree. Hundred percent agree. I think it's an interesting strategy, as you said, eleven different segments to it, and I think that is the key point, as you said, it's segmenting travel. So there are so many elements related to travel and tourism, which are lifestyle now, but they they are almost indivisible from tourism. Uh, and as you said, some of those are sports, music, fashion, art and design, and, and the creative industries as well. I think we've seen a shift towards that in, in the last couple of years in the region. But I think it's a great idea. I think it really, really works. 
I guess for a number of reasons, it, it's a good way to to tap different markets that have different uh, aspirations and expectations of travel to Thailand. Also, potentially with those different festivals and those different kind of emphasis across the year, you can broaden your year round, your calendar travel rather than just at key points during the year. So it's all in the implementation, isn't it? The strategy itself sounds great, but it's the implementation, okay. how that actually works. Will some of these 11 actually drop off and then you just get, you know, perhaps books doesn't become as interesting or will they continue focusing on 11? I think if we go back to Indonesia and it had those 10 new Bali's and then it decided to focus on five priority destinations. So you probably will streamline over time. Um, but I think it's a bold move. I think it's a great move. And I think, you know, as you said, South Korea has led the way on this. All countries in the region want to try and emulate some of that success. It's not easy to do. It's very difficult to do um, because it didn't just happen overnight. Did it? South Korea had been generating that, that K-pop, that K-fashion, that K-culture, that K-cosmetics culture for many, many years before it hit the mainstream. So it wasn't just an overnight success. But it has been a success and it's understandable why countries in the region want to want to take a, you know, want a piece of that pie. Yeah, absolutely. So with that, that brings the show to a close for this week. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and don't forget to send us your thoughts and comments on anything we discussed or anything we missed out. You can drop us a message on our LinkedIn page at the Southeast Asia Travel Show. Yep. And as always, you can catch up with the Southeast Asia Travel Show's full back catalogue on our website, the seasiatravelshow.com. And you can find us on any international podcast platform. So that's a wrap for today. We'll both be back next week to discuss more travel and tourism in Southeast Asia with a special guest. See you then.